<laughs> Welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a history podcast where I attempt to teach my wife music history. And I just make jokes. <laughs> yes. And ward off the cats. Yeah. I do that too. Sometimes I remember what we talk about. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. First, anything you want to plug? Anything you want to say? Any introduction stuff did to I get out of the way? Did I already plug the Colony House album? Yes. You did that before Laura Keene's episode. Okay. Well, Colony House. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. <Again>. <laughs> Last week, we talked about ragtime. You want to wanna explain to us what ragtime is? Ragtime is the music in the background <laughs> of silent films, <laughs> where the one guy bursts through the door to the saloon and it's so like stuck on western i don't because that's how <laughs> i know songs, ragtime and none they of the songs we listened to were western no but you can you not picture it where like it's the saloon and the guy like pushes through that weird door that doesn't have a top or a bottom it's just <laughs> basically a gate it's a curtain and no it's made out of wood yeah, it's a door I know what you're talking about okay well then you know that it's this that's ragtime i'm the song i hear in my head when i think of that scene is that weird one that's like <laughs> Like, I can't oh, do Oh, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, it's got, okay, like, that weird, so like, whistle thing. <laughs> ragtime is what's happening before the bad guy walks in. When everyone's just having a okay, good so time they're having, like, a in party, the saloon. And then there's, like, a record scratch, and then that little then, jingle yes, happens. Okay, yes. I'm with you there. I get that. Okay, cool. All right. Well, this I week, would like to plug. I, I We're going back. We're, we're plugging. I would like to plug Freddie Fish. Because I am thinking Freddy Fish is a computer game that I played a long time ago in the 90s. And there was one that was set kind of westerny. And that's why I know ragtime music. Okay. Okay. Is because Freddy Fish and she had like a big hat. Oh, Freddy's a she? Yeah. Okay. And then Luther is the little green guy and Freddy Mm. is, it looks like Fonder. She looks like Fonder. Anyway, Freddy Fish. Shout out Freddy Fish. Well, this week, we're talking about Ragtime's big three. Freddie Fish is not one of them. Is Luther? No. Was his name Luther? Now I'm second-guessing myself. Know. They used, like, purple sea urchins as currency. <laughs> 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 of course they did. <laughs> All right. so sad you don't know this. It's the same creators as uh, Putt-Putt, the purple car. Oh, of course. Putt-Putt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only one. <laughs> there are dozens of us. Well, this week we're talking about Ragtime's other big three. They were the three most influential and most popular people in Ragtime. Before you ask, no, I do not remember his name from the previous episode. Okay. The one we just talked about. The one we just talked about approximately 10 minutes ago. Well, that was Scott Joplin. Cool. We talked about him a little bit in last week's episode, but he's easily the most important person in like all of Ragtime. He's the king. Yeah. But we'll save him until the end, because we're building up to his story. First, Joseph Lamb. December 6th, 1887, Joseph Lamb was born in Montclair, New Jersey, to Irish immigrant parents. So right there, just with that little bit of information, should be kind of weird to think of Lamb as one of the big three of ragtime. I was thinking that. Yeah. Why were you thinking that? I don't know. Irish immigrants weren't the founders. That's one, yeah. By most accounts, Ragtime started in 1895, which meant Lamb was only seven years old when it started. Oh my gosh, was he the Michael Jackson? 
of Ragtime. Not quite. He was probably about in his 20s when he oh, broke out. Darn. Ragtime reached, like it started to reach its popularity when Joplin put out Maple Leaf Rag in 1899, which was when Lamb was 11 years old. So he's really young throughout the history of the genre. He was 20 years younger than Joplin. Also, he was born in the Northeast, and Ragtime was prominent in the Midwest along the Mississippi and Missouri Rivers, not in the Northeast. Also, he was white, which you can pick up on from the Irish immigrant parents, kind of. Lamb was the youngest of four children, and he taught himself to play the piano. The only real musical education he got was from his sisters in the, here we go again, the etude, the etude. We need to look up how to say this. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. We're going to figure this okay, out. Okay, well, you do that. I'm going to keep teaching you. No, I okay. can only focus on one thing at one time. <laughs> I didn't think you were focusing on me. That's what it's going to I'm focusing on you. That's the whole point of this. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even remember the guy's name we talked That's about. That's because I don't like 15 names. 15 minutes ago. If I meet a person, I barely remember their you name. You did remember he was the king of ragtime. Yeah. That's good. Etude. Etude. Okay. Etude. Etude. <laughs> a short musical. Shut up. <laughs> a short musical composition, typically for one instrument. Designed as an exercise to improve the technique or demonstrate the skill of the player. Cool. I feel like a lot of people are going to be upset that I didn't know what that is. But like you I claim don't to know yeah. about music. I I claim to know about music history, not musical playing. I've never. I took guitar lessons in fifth grade, and since then I've had no formal training. Okay, so Lamb was the youngest of four children, and he taught himself to play the piano. He learned from his sisters and also the Etude musical magazine, which is kind of ironic since we mentioned last week that they published a very mean article about ragtime. Yet here they are teaching one of ragtime's big three how to play music. <laughs> Early on, his father tried to teach him carpentry, but his father died when he was 12, so Lamb was sent to Ontario to study engineering at St. Jerome's College. Random, but okay. Pretty much from the minute he got to that school, he hated it, and he started to compose songs. <laughs> he was often homesick, and he got tired of the German food, especially sauerkraut. <laughs> yeah, I get that. <laughs> so maybe composing songs was kind of like a form of escape for him. Whatever the reason, he did a lot of it there. In a later interview, Lamb recounted a story that happened there, a story that has no point, but I think it's really random, and I wanted to say it anyway. I'm so excited. Quote, Apparently, in those days, the boys used to have to go without butter once a week. Oh, no. But it was custom that everyone took turns buying some on those days. One day, Joe was running back to school with the butter when he ran right into a brick wall and broke his nose. <laughs> I don't know how he didn't see the brick wall. Like, he was just staring at his butter. Or I don't know. <laughs> anyway, at age 16... Lamb dropped out of school and took a job working at a dry goods store in New York City. It was here that his interest in ragtime really started to take off. He would spend a lot of money on sheet music and, in 1906, even started his own little ragtime group, which was called the Clover Imperial Orchestra. That sounds so fancy. Yeah. He thought he was the coolest. He was the coolest. Don't break this little kid's heart. Okay. <laughs> While shopping for music at John Stark's store... John Stark was a ragtime publisher. In 1907, Lamb met his idol, Scott Joplin. A much older Lamb gave an interview where he talked about the meeting. He said, quote, 
I was in the publishing office of John Stark purchasing some of Joplin's more recent works in late 1907. Before leaving, I vocalized my wish to meet the master at some point, and the clerk pointed to a man with one leg <laughs> wrapped up sitting across the room and said, there he is. Shut up. <laughs> Lamb told Joplin that he had been writing his own ragtime, and Joplin arranged to hear it. So one of the first songs Lamb played for him was called Sensation, which went on to be Lamb's first published song. This is so cute. After hearing the performance, Joplin apparently said, that sounded like a good color drag, which was the best compliment for Lamb. So basically, Joplin's like, an African-American right could have ri- wrote that. So yeah. I love that. Joplin sent Sensation to his own publisher, John Stark, and from that point on, Stark would publish pretty much everything that Lamb sent him. From 1908 until 1919, Stark published 12 of Lamb's songs. In 1914, Lamb got a job with the financing branch of an import business called L.F. Domerich and Company. From then on, music became just more of a hobby for him. Oh, dude, you were so, so promising. But by that point, ragtime was on its way out. Oh, that's fair. It was. It only started like dying in years. around 1917, and this is 1914. He so. had his fun then. That's yeah. He still published a few songs until 1920 when the popular focus shifted from ragtime to jazz, and Lamb just apparently wasn't all that interested in making jazz music. From then on, Lamb led a pretty quiet life after that. He worked as an accountant as an accountant in Brooklyn, but over the years he continued to play music and mastered the ragtime genre in a way no one else had, and maybe no one else ever had the chance to, because everyone else stopped playing, and he was just like, ah, I really like ragtime. So, like, Aww. he's... In the 40s, still playing ragtime when everyone else has stopped. Do what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. He kept he kept playing ragtime when everyone else had either moved on to jazz or died. In the <laughs> 1950s, there was a miniature ragtime revival. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. We have to go back to how you delivered that line. It's actually kind of important. Because, like, as we're about to see, we know about Lamb because he was still alive when people cared. A lot of these other people weren't alive when people started to care. So <laughs> we don't know much about them. I haven't even moved on or died. <laughs> Continues <laughs> without a break. Yeah. That was so funny. In the 1950s, there was a ragtime revival. People became very interested in ragtime yeah. for the first time since about 1920. At that, po- at that point, people were really shocked to learn that Lamb, one of the best ragtime musicians of all time, was I'm still alive. Still alive. alive. They also were shocked to learn that he was white. Through the 50s, Lamb started to... be racially profiled, (laughs) just like me. Y'all, we all need to do better. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a compliment. That's that's a big compliment to Lamb, because it's like... It's a ragtime's an African-American genre of music, and they were like, this guy's so good, he has to be part of that community. Through the 50s, Lamb started to polish and release new music for the first time. Some of it was unreleased old songs, and some were new songs that he had written over the course of the years. There are some really interesting interviews with Lamb from this period, because people were like interested again. He was like able to tell his story and the story so of ragtime. Fun. Lamb died of a heart attack in Brooklyn in 1960. Less fun. One year after his last album released. Here is Lamb playing one of his songs called Contentment Rag. People can't see, but the text just said this was published in 1915 by Stark. Got a little fun tune. Enjoy it. Fun little jaunt. All right. 
that is Joseph Lamb. Pretty Thanks, cool guy. Joseph Lamb. The next one we're going to be talking about is named James Scott. On February 12th, 1885, James Scott, also known as the Little Professor, <laughs> was born in <laughs> Neosho, Missouri. Why? We'll, we'll hear about that. <laughs> Both of his parents were former slaves. Scott learned piano by listening to his mother play blues, folk, and gospel songs. He also took lessons with a guy named John Coleman, who was a local piano professor. He had perfect pitch, so learning the piano was basically a breeze for him. I hate people like that. Yeah, I it's don't, so but unfair. like that's not fair at all. Like it's really I unfair. don't I don't get it. You freaks of nature out there. I'm so jealous. <laughs> but at the same time, they've given us a lot of really good music. So I mean, hats off to them. You know Charlie Puth has perfect pitch. I believe it. I've always liked him. And apparently he has this talent where like you can play him any song and he can just recreate it on the piano. I mean, regardless that's how, of if he's that's ever how heard Perry it or not. learned. That's how Perry does music. Like he would do that. That's crazy. That's my brother. In eighteen ninety nine, James Scott's family moved to Kansas where he got his first piano. In nineteen oh one, they moved back to Missouri. There Scott began working at the Dumars Music Company. First, washing windows, then demonstrating songs on the piano as a song plugger. Do you know what a song plugger is? No, I don't know what the difference between demonstrating songs and just playing music is. Well, remember, back in this time, music was sold via sheet music. Right. So people didn't know what it sounded like. So James Scott would sit there at his piano and play the sheet music. So people could be like, that's what that song sounds like. I like that one. I'm going to buy that one. That's so cute. So it's like the forerunner to like, did you ever go to like FYE or music stores where they had those little CD things and you could just like press buttons and stand there with headphones on and listen to new albums? I actually don't know if I did that. I did that all the time. Well, I know. You're <laughs> but yeah, so that's basically what it was. Like he would just sit there and play songs people wanted to hear to see if they wanted to buy it. That's so cute. But with that job, he sometimes snuck in a few of his own songs that he wrote. Oh, sneaky, sneaky. That caused demand for his music to grow. Like people would hear him playing his music and be like, I want that one. Did he ever get in trouble for it? No, actually, uh, in 1903, Dumars, the guy who owned the shop, gave in and started publishing some of his songs. That's awesome. So his first song, A Summer Breeze, March and Two-Step, was published in 1903. By the next year... Two more of Scott's songs were published by Dumar. They did well, but apparently not well enough, since Dumar's had to close up shop. Scott was still gaining in popularity and was able to perform in saloons around Kansas and Missouri. Saloons, you say? Saloons, I say. <laughs> like a Western. <laughs> <laughs> in 1905, Scott took a trip to St. Louis, Missouri, to go on the pilgrimage that all great ragtime musicians had to do. He went to find Scott Joplin. After finding Joplin, I don't know how we don't have a funny story this time. He ran into a brick wall. <laughs> Scott played some music for Joplin. After that, Joplin introduced him to John Stark, who was, as we already said, Joplin and Joseph Lamb's publisher. Stark published the songs that Scott played for Joplin in 1906, which was called Frog Legs Rag. What? <laughs> and it became a massive hit. It was the second best-selling song that Stark ever published, only behind Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag, which was, like, the biggest song of all time. I like how all of the names end in rag. <laughs> yeah. Got to. Got a little marketing play. Stark would regularly publish Scott's music until 1922. 
I don't know if like John Stark as a publisher just automatically published whoever Scott Joplin sent to him because like it sounds like it because like he's Scott Joplin so like he knows what he's talking about when it comes to ragtime so if he sends someone to you it's like yeah sure let's do it or if like there were a few that we don't know about and Joplin was just like well I'll just send everyone there who cares like everyone go to everyone just go to John Stark that'd be but, cute I mean whatever like this one seemed to work out so. In 1914, Scott moved to Kansas City, Missouri, and he married Nora Johnson. He taught Nora music Jones. in... I'm sorry, that was stupid. <laughs> he taught music in accompanied silent movies at the Panama Theater. What ya <laughs> think about that? According to his cousin, Patsy Thomas, quote, Everybody called him Little Professor. He always walked rapidly, looking at the ground would pass you on the street and never see you. He seemed always deep in thought. <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> yeah. I'm also guessing he's probably not the tallest man if he's nicknamed the Little Professor. Yeah. There's a description of him playing in a saloon. Quote, sitting at the keyboard with his left leg wrapped around a leg of the stool and bouncing up and down with the beat as he played, his short, square-tipped fingers literally flying over the keys as he attempted to squeeze the greatest number of tones into the space of each beat. I love that. <laughs> that was very descriptive, and yeah. I really would have loved to see that in person. Mm -hmm. Also, I like how he sits, because <laughs> I feel like that's similar like to me. That. Like, I'm going to sit however the heck I want yeah. to. That's not a normal way to sit. He seems like a guy who's just super into the music and just like lost himself in the music and didn't care what he looked like or what happened. Like he's Yeah, he's it. just playing. That's so cool. Unfortunately, the last years of his life weren't exactly happy ones. Due to talkies or movies with sound, he lost his work at the theater. Oh, baby. Due to jazz, he lost his prominence as a musician. His wife passed away without having any children. He moved in with his cousin before passing away in 1938 at the age of 52. Oh. There isn't as much information on Scott as I would like for there to be, because he seems like such a cool and interesting guy. Like, I would like to know more about him. But at the time, no one really thought to record more about his life. And unlike Joseph Lamb, he wasn't still alive during the Ragtime revival, so, like, we don't have his own account of his story. Well, it could have been. Dang. Yeah. So a lot of his story years. is lost, which is kind of sad. Do we get to hear any of his music? Actually, no. I don't have any linked here. Oh. It wouldn't be him playing, because I don't think anyone recorded him playing. So mm -hmm. it would be someone else playing something here out. But I'll I'll find one. I'll find one of his songs, and I'll link it in the show notes. Oh, you have to show me, too. Yeah, I will. Cool. Now we're on to the big daddy, Scott Joplin. No, he's not the big daddy. Why not? Because he's the king. Okay, fine. <laughs> you can't just throw these nicknames around, okay? <laughs> he decided that he wanted to be the king. I will just say straight up, I love Scott Joplin. He's one of my favorite characters in music, like American music history. I think he's just, he's so cool. I Like, I there's not a whole lot of reason behind that. I just think he's really cool. And I think, like, what he did is super special. And he's, like, I think he deserves a lot more credit than he gets. Like, no one really talks about Scott Joplin all that much. But what he did led pretty directly to jazz, which is, like, the biggest genre in American history. So, like... I don't know. I think he deserves more credit than he gets. Nick would like to plug Scott, Scott Joplin. Joplin. <laughs> Go listen to Maple Leaf Rag. It's a banger. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little bit of controversy surrounding where Joplin was born. The old legends. You're going to say something about that? <laughs> I, I, I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
The old legends say he was born in Texarkana, Texas. Mm. <laughs> That's where my best friend is from. Mm-hmm. I knew you would say that. In 1868. However, Texarkana was not established until 1873. So maybe he was born in the place that eventually became Texarkana, or maybe he was born 40 miles south in a place called Linden, Texas, which is where he was living at the age of two, according to census data. But, I mean, it really doesn't matter. He's he's from Texas. Texarkana. Well, I mean, if he's from Texarkana, he could be from Arkansas or well, Canada. Sp- <laughs> specifically, Texas, this is Texarkana, Texas. Can- like, that's what the... Because he's a, he's a Texan, so, like... He's from Texas. But we no. What are you trying to do here? <laughs> What's the canna part of Texarkana? What's the what? The canna part of Texarkana. Arkansas? No, it's R. Oh, I thought it was three, but no, it's just Texas and Arkansas. <laughs> oh, wait, no, what's the canna part? Whoa. <laughs> uh, okay, we're going to move on. His family moved to Texarkana, Arkansas where his father worked the railroads and his mother worked as a cleaner. By the way, uh, I kind of missed this in my script. Sorry. Uh, His father was a former slave and his mother was a freeborn African-American from Kentucky. He was the second of six children. So yeah, his father worked the railroads and his mother worked as a cleaner. Both of his parents were musical. His father played the violin and his mom sang. And they gave him kind of rudimentary education in music when he was a kid. But, like, I mean, none of them, they weren't technically s- trained, so neither of them could give him, like, full-on lessons. You don't have lessons. to be technically trained. No, but helps, probably. Uh, by the age of seven, he was playing the piano in rich people's houses while his mom cleaned them. That's so <laughs> bougie. <laughs> in the early 1880s, his dad left for another woman. One of Joplin's biographers claims that Joplin's mother's support of Joplin's musical education led to the split. Joplin's dad wanted him to pursue more practical employment because music wasn't really going to pay the bills at that point. But his mom understood the talent that Joplin had and thought he should pursue that. Good job, Mom. So apparently that caused some tension in their marriage and his dad left. That's such a bummer. Yeah. Most of his musical education came from a German-Jewish immigrant named Julius Weiss. Weiss was, quote, no stranger to race hatred. As a German Jew, he was often slapped and called a Christ killer. Whoa! Yeah. Weiss was employed as a music professor by a prominent business family in the area. So basically, he taught rich kids how to play music. But he recognized that Joplin's mom struggled to support her six kids alone, and he saw that Joplin was really talented So Weiss taught him free of charge and even helped his mom get a used piano so that Joplin could practice. That's so nice. Mm -hmm. Joplin never forgot Weiss and that generosity. And like after he got famous as a composer, he would regularly send Weiss money. Just on random occasions for helping him out. It's kind of crazy like how much of American music history is owed to these like these little unsung heroes like Weiss. And like there was another... I think Jewish immigrant who taught like Stephen Foster when he was a kid. And it's like, we don't remember these guys' names. No one talks about them. They don't have any recordings. But without them, how much of music would be different now? Hmm. It's crazy. Anyway. It's, it's really crazy how the small things that you do mm-hmm. can impact people and and impact the world. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> be conscious.
conscious of yes. the decisions that you're making and, and the be way nice that you're to people. kind to people and stuff, you know? Especially poor kids who are musically gifted. <laughs> but only if they're <laughs> musically gifted. If they're not, then just kick them to the curb, the hooligans. <laughs> in the late 1880s, Joplin had, be- had been performing in a few shows, but he decided to go all out. He quit his job at the railroad in order to be a traveling musician, which is always a smart move. I mean, people are making that decision right now. Exactly. We're still having the same reaction to all of them. So He played for a bit with the Texarkana Minstrels, but he found that it was hard to find good work as a black pianist. Until in 1893, he played at the Chicago World Fair, where he realized how much the general public loved African-American performers and, he, and they loved their music. So I imagine like this is where his interest and resolve to be a full-time musician like really hardened. Like before that, it was waning a little bit. And he's like, maybe I'll just go back to the railroad. But playing at the Chicago World Affair, he was like, people really dig this. This could be huge. So I'm going to push on and I'm going to keep at it. In 1894, Joplin came to Sedalia, Missouri, which is the city he is most tied to. Even though there's no record of him permanently living there until 1904, he was still around the area. There's still a little festival in Sedalia every year in his honor. Good job. Yeah. So cute. Joplin had published a few songs in 1895, but none of them were like hits. But while living in Sedalia in 1897, Joplin published his first piece of ragtime called Original Rags. But since he was an unknown artist, he was forced to share credit with another composer who was better known. So it was like co-authored by Scott Joplin, even though he wrote the whole thing. But they had to put another guy on there so they could sell it. In 1899, he published the song that would change his life, Maple Leaf Rag. There's a lot of contradictory stories about how the song came about, but it's highly likely that he wrote it several years earlier than it got published because it was already a well-known song in Sedalia before it got published. Joplin would play it around town before someone finally agreed to like take the chance on it. Joplin approached a lot of publishers without success before being signed by John Stark in 1899 who is a retailer of musical instruments. Stark is just getting it. He, he really knows, is. He knows what's up. He's calling out those people who's going to be yep. big. And through his career, Stark would become Joplin's most important publisher. The contract that they signed stated that Joplin would be paid 1% for each sale of Maple Leaf Rag with a minimum sales price of 25 cents. He's only paid 1%. <laughs> yes. So he's paid 1% of 25 cents. Well, that's the minimum. I guess it could sell for more. but I just... One percent. Yeah, it's not a lot. Holy cow. Sales started slow, but eventually they would be a source of steady income for the rest of Joplin's life. The fact that he's getting steady income off of one percent of... Twenty-five cents. Oh, probably a little bit more at that yeah. point if it's livable. But like, oh my gosh. Yep. Maple Leaf Rag became the standard for ragtime music. It served as the model that other composers copied. It led to Joplin being called the king of ragtime by many people, including himself. Did we play Maple Leaf Rag last episode? You did, but let's listen to it again. (laughs) Okay, well, here it is. This is cool because you can see the guy's fingers playing it, too. I'm, like, entranced. Yeah. This is a cool video. You guys need to come watch this video. I was going to try and say the channel name, but I don't think I can pronounce that guy's name. Yeah. Well, go watch that video, guys, because it's really cool. It'll be linked in the show notes. 
I, I forgot to listen because I was having <laughs> so much fun watching well, you it. You heard it last episode. That's okay. In 1900, Joplin and his wife moved to St. Louis. They had a baby daughter who died shortly after birth. Oh. Apparently, their marriage was a difficult one because well, Joplin... They lost a baby right away. Yes. And also, Joplin's wife didn't like music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so they would eventually divorce. It was during this period in St. Louis that Joplin produced most of his best-known works. I mean, besides Maple Leaf Rack, but all the other ones. In all the other best-known ones yes. that we're not mentioning? No, because I didn't write them down. <laughs> In 19 so well known. <laughs> they were known at the time. I'm just not in that time. In 1904, Joplin remarried, but his new wife died 10 weeks after their wedding due to complications from a cold. Poor Dang. <laughs> poor guy just can't find love. Around this time, Joplin started an opera company of 30 performers. He produced his first opera called A Guest of Honor and set it up for a national tour. Not much is known about this show, since someone associated with the company stole the box office receipts after performance. So Why? Jop I don't know. Maybe some Fraud. dispute. Maybe just, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so because of that, Joplin couldn't pay the performers or their lodging houses, so the company folded. The show, by some accounts, or by most accounts, was about President Theodore Roosevelt's dinner with civil rights leader Booker T. Washington, which was a polarizing meeting that many people, probably exclusively white people, Hated. No copy of the score has ever surfaced for the show, so it's considered lost. In 1907, Joplin moved to New York City in order to find a producer for his next opera. He met his third wife, Lottie Stokes, and married her in 1909. He wasn't able to find a publisher for the next opera, and in 1911, he published it himself. It was called Tremonitia. He couldn't uh, find anyone to take on the actual cost of performing it. But he was so desperate to actually see it performed, he put it on himself. <laughs> in 1915, he invited a small group of people to see it at a rehearsal space in Harlem. With only Joplin on piano, who by his own admission was really off that night, it was a horrible failure. Some of the audience walked out during the performance. That's so sad. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, it had to have been low budget. He was the only musician. He wasn't playing that well. Like, it just wasn't having it. After this, Joplin suffered a bit of a mental breakdown. He was bankrupt, discouraged, and worn out. And his wife didn't like his music. No, that he divorced her long ago. I was just saying. <laughs> it might have been a pattern. That's true. It uh, probably wasn't. He probably did not make that mistake again. It's <laughs> no. probably the first Lottie. question he asks when he takes a girl out on a date. Mm -hmm. is like, so how do you feel about music? How do you feel about <laughs> musicians? <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about being poor? <laughs> I'm assuming at this I point his name is well known. <laughs> Lottie Stokes, his third wife, was, like, super sold in. Like, she helped him a lot as they got older. So I love it. I but love a supportive, he supportive was still, lady. He was still very worn down by this point. No one cared about his pride and joy, Tremonitia, because with it, Joplin had, had given up the popular music of ragtime for the more artistic music of European opera. Oh, I was wondering how opera and ragtime were going yeah. to mix together. It, it didn't. It seemed like a weird marriage. Mm -hmm. No one was ready for that. Tremonitia wasn't a ragtime opera, and no one wanted to hear anything else but ragtime from the king of ragtime. And so Bummer. in some ways, he was a victim of his own success. He's just trying to, to make art. Tremonitia is about a slave community near Texarkana. An 18-year-old African-American woman, Tremonitia, is taught to read by a white woman. 
She then leads her community against the influence of conjurers who prey on ignorance and superstition. Tremanisha is abducted and about to be thrown into a wasp nest when she is huh? saved by the love interest. Like, just thrown a literal into literal wasp nest. Yes. Like, either to be killed or tortured. I don't know. But it's not going to be pretty. The community then learns the importance of education and chooses Tremanisha to be their leader and educator. The opera and she gets married to the guy who saved her from wasps. Probably. And lived happily ever after. The opera celebrates the African-American music that Joplin grew up with. It is seen today as a great record of rural black music from the late 19th century. That's awesome. I'm so yeah. sad that this wasn't a big thing. Mm-hmm. Like he, I can yep. tell like he put so much into it. Yeah. He incorporated a lot of it, like a lot of the style of rural black music to form the backdrop of Tremanish's community. He took the music he grew up around in the rural areas of Texas and incorporated it into a show, preserving it. That's really cool. It was an ex- it was actually an early example of civil rights advocacy too, because it argued for the education of African Americans as a necessity for advancement, as well as Joplin's attempt to create a truly African American opera. He wanted to show people that operas with African American music could be as good as operas featuring European music. Keep in mind that this was during the time of blackface, C-O-O-N songs, and minstrelsy was still happening, so it's safe to say the public was not on board with the mission of Tremanisha. That's even more admirable. This is a cool dude. But unfortunately, Joplin never got to see the opera professionally performed. At the time of his death, it was considered a colossal failure. He sent a copy of it to a review magazine right after he wrote it. The magazine... Probably not. (laughs) I'm guessing they would not have liked it. The magazine gave it glowing reviews, but because of that one performance in the rehearsal space in Harlem, everyone else thought it was terrible. Some people even thought it was like a joke. No one would take it on, and Joplin would die without it being performed again. The world professional premiere of Tremanisha took place on January 27th, 1972 in Atlanta, Georgia. Wow, that's so late. Since that premiere, the opera has been performed all over the United States to wide critic and public acclaim. No way, I've never heard of this. One opera historian noted, the opera slumbered in oblivion for more than half a century before making a triumphant Broadway debut. It also recorded commercially in its entirety. Wait, sorry. It was also recorded commercially in its entirety, the earliest African-American opera to achieve that distinction, and the earliest to receive widespread modern recognition in performance. By Can all we go watch it? What? I was going to say let's go watch it, but I might fall asleep. <laughs> By all accounts, Tremanisha was a resounding success that spoke to people in profound ways. It was loved by everyone who saw it, and it was played everywhere. In 1976, Joplin was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Music for Tremanisha. That's awesome. Yep. But Joplin never knew any of that because he died with it still being a failure. In 1914, Joplin was broke in New York and his health was failing. He knew his time was running out and he and Lottie, so he and Lottie, his wife, worked tirelessly to release the last piece of music he would ever publish. It was self-published under the Scott Joplin Music Company. What happened to his dude? John Stark? Yeah. He's probably not in the game at this point, or retired, or I don't know. Or just didn't want to take on Joplin anymore. Who knows? It was called Magnetic Rag, and it was released in 1914. Magnetic Rag has been characterized as melancholic and haunting. 
One critic said Joplin had pushed the music far beyond the boisterous beer hall ambiance that characterized, for many listeners and players, the rag idiom. This was music on a large scale that was now being squeezed into the narrow confines of rag form, so much so that the music often burst at the seams. Magnetic rag is sometimes considered his best piece of music. It pushed the boundaries of ragtime and pushed it in a new direction, one focused on artistry and form. Well, it didn't seem like it was necessarily new to him. No. Unfortunately, the development came a little bit too late because it was ragtime was already on its way out when he tried to like develop the genre into something else. He had, uh, I'm calling, I don't think that it was just at this point that he was trying to develop it. Sounds like he'd been trying to like do new things with it for a while. Yeah, but I mean, like, even Maple Leaf Rag and some of his old, like, Tree Manisha was something new, but it wasn't ragtime. Like, his older, his ragtime songs were pretty strictly ragtime. Like, they were jaunty and fun and, like, made for the Western saloon atmosphere. But this one was, like, more than that. Like, he tried to incorporate more artistry into it. I'm excited to hear it. Yep, here it is. By 1916, Joplin was suffering with neurosyphilis. In 1917, he was put into a mental mental institution. Neurosyphilis? Yes, where he died of syphilitic dementia at the age of 48. He was buried in a pauper's grave that went unmarked for 57 years. Wow. His grave was finally given a marker in 1974, which was the same year that a movie based on his life won Best Picture at the Oscars. Wow. Through his brief but powerful career, Joplin wrote 44 ragtime pieces, one ragtime ballet, and two operas. He's pretty incredible. Here is the ending dance of Tree Manisha. This is one of the people at home. You're probably going to want to watch because you're not going to get a full picture just from here. I love her. <laughs> yeah, like watching that and listening to it, like, I'm sad, but I'm not surprised that it wasn't successful in his time because it's like that was a distinctly high class European music. They wouldn't want to see the african-americans performing it back then which sucks because it was apparently really really good like i haven't seen true so i don't know but everyone loves it mm. so it kind of sucks that like i mean it's awesome that his his pride and joy his little baby 
went on to have this like incredible success, but it's sad that yeah. he never knew it. Mm. That's Scott Joplin. Thanks, Scott Joplin. Yeah, he's a cool guy. I like him a lot. And that is Ragtime's Big Three. Officially done with Ragtime. That was a fun time. Yeah. I enjoyed that. You like Ragtime? I do like rag- Ragtime. Cool. Next week, we're going to talk about the blues. <gasps> I like the blues, yeah. too. And then the week after that, we get to talk about probably my other favorite person <laughs> in the history of American popular music. That's so cool. He's a guy I'm always drawn to because his life is just so crazy and weird and <laughs> fun. It's going to make for a fun time. Yes. Right. Tune in next week and the week after that. Yes. To listen to tons of crazy stuff. We're getting into the episodes that kind of scare me a little bit, though. Why? Because it's like, the es- we're get- especially with blues, we're getting into the topics that other people know more like before this we've just been kind of playing in our own little playground and no one knows anything about vaudeville so like if i get it wrong who cares but this like people know the blues so people might be paying more attention well we'll bring corrections corner back around and we'll just all learn together and it'll be super cool you're gonna know things that they don't know off the top of their head they're gonna know things that will help you understand something you enjoy a little bit more we're all just gonna have a grand old time yeah All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Join us again next week. And everyone go listen to that song. I really liked that song. I'll probably have to. We listen to the whole thing while we're recording this. Yes, because music is supposed to be listened to. You listen to the entirety of it. That's how the artist made it to be. Well, we're probably not going to play the whole thing in the podcast. I wasn't expecting you to. That was Go listen to it because it was really good. It was really cool, y'all. I really enjoyed it. We're talking specifically about magnetic rag here. Magnetic rag. Go listen to that. Also, go see Trumanisha if it's playing where you are. That would be cool. We should check on that. We should. It's probably not, though. Probably not. (laughs) All right. Bye, Bye. everyone.